We have been working our way through James for quite some time, and of course now we're getting quite near the end. And this section of James, uh, here towards the end, is full of all kinds of practical instruction for the church. James is telling these Christians how to live together in wisdom and faithfulness, even as they undergo various trials, even as they undergo persecution, even as they suffer. This was a hard thing. These Jewish Christians thought, well, our promised Messiah has come. Surely he's come to set everything right. Surely he's come to vindicate those who trust in him and are loyal to him and love him. And yet here we are suffering. We're, we're languishing. We're getting persecuted. And not only that, but many of us are getting sick. How can this be if Jesus is the Messiah? Well, what James writes to show us is that God has his good and wise purposes in all of these trials. Indeed, he uses these trials, this suffering, this persecution, to mold us and shape us, to mature us into the people he wants us to be. Now, what did we see last week? Let's review here for just a minute. Last week, we focused on verses 14 and 15. What did we see there? James there speaks to sick Christians, and he tells Christians what to do when they are experiencing a health crisis. And the loss of health really is a crisis. When we lose our health, we are totally dependent upon other people. Uh, we're forced to face our own frailty, our weakness, our mortality. But if you have a serious illness and you're not yet ready to die, you want to be made well, what should you do? James tells us here, he says that you should call for the elders who will come and pray over you and anoint you with oil. And we saw last week that really there are a number of paradoxes here. By paradox, I mean something that appears contradictory, but it can be unraveled if you work at it enough. You can show that it's not really a contradiction. But there are some paradoxes here. So here's something we saw last week. Not all sickness is due to sin. And it would be wrong to claim that, to accuse the sick person of getting ill because of some sin they've committed. That's the kind of thing Job's friends did with him. It's clearly wrong. Not all sickness is due to sin. But when you are sick, it is a great time to examine yourself, to take spiritual inventory, to inspect your own life, to see if there are any sins you need to turn away from. And when you confess those sins, James says here, you can be assured of forgiveness. So illness might not be a judgment for sin, but it's still appropriate for us to use it as an occasion to repent. Still appropriate to use it as an occasion to repent. God can use bodily disease to bring healing to our souls. That sounds kind of paradoxical in a way to, 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 to see that, but uh, clearly that's bound up in what James says here. Here's another paradox that we touched on last week. When you have a crisis of health and you call for the elders and they pray over you and anoint you with oil, James says the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. James just says flat out, the prayer of faith on behalf of the sick will be answered. James says, when the elders pray over you, you're going to be healed. You should expect healing. You should expect those prayers to be answered. You will be saved, he says. You will be raised up. But here's the catch. Here's the paradox. The saving and raising up may happen in this world or it may happen in the world to come in the resurrection. 
One way or another, you will be healed. One way or another, you'll get that healing. One way or another, you will be raised up. But it's open-ended. That word saved there, it could mean healing from the bodily illness or it could mean our final salvation from sin. That word raised up could mean you're raised up from your deathbed or it could mean you're raised up from the grave at the last day. One way or another, God's going to answer the prayer. We just don't know how. Well, that brings us to verse 16, which is our focus today, especially the first part of verse 16. And here James makes a shift. He shifts from speaking about sick Christians confessing sin to elders to speaking about all Christians confessing sin to one another. James wants us to practice the confession of sin mutual confession of sin, confessing our sin to one another. So let's examine confession. What does it mean to confess sin? What does it mean to confess sin? Well, I want to give you a few principles here uh, that uh, I will, will shape this discussion, that will shape our understanding of these things. First of all, James says we are to confess sin to one another, Confession of sin is always made first and foremost to God. James just takes that for granted here. He just assumes they already know that. That first and foremost, when it comes to confessing sin, we are to confess our sins to God. You really only owe a confession of sin to the person you've sinned against. If I haven't sinned against you, I don't owe you a confession of sin. You only owe a confession of sin to those you have sinned against. But because all sin is against God, all sin ought to be confessed to God. To give you an example of this, think about the life of David. David fell into very serious sin, sleeping with Bathsheba, murdering Uriah, and yet in Psalm 51, he prays against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. He sees that what makes sin Sin. What makes sin so exceedingly sinful is that it is an offense against a good and loving and holy God. That's what makes sin sin. All sin is defined by God and only by God. We don't get to define sin. You don't get to say somebody sinned against me because they hurt my feelings or they didn't live up to my expectations. They didn't meet my expectations. You don't get to define sin. They may or may not have sinned against you when they hurt your feelings. We don't know unless we check what they did against the Word of God. The Word of God is always the standard. Only God can define sin. God is God. God's the lawgiver. All of our sin is against Him. All sin must be confessed to God. And so confession to God is critical. Confession to God is foundational. That is the starting point. This is why we practice confession of our sins to God here in the liturgy every single week. This is in our liturgy at TPC every single week. We confess our sins corporately every Sunday in the liturgy. And of course, that confession of sin, when we come together, we get down on our knees, we confess our sin to God, then we also hear a word of absolution, a promise of forgiveness, a declaration of cleansing. Every Sunday in the, conf in the confession, we kneel, we humble ourselves, we come face to face with the truth about who we are and what we've done. That there's still something deeply wrong with us and we still violate God's 
Scripture, God's Word, God's law, in thought, word, and deed, in all kinds of ways. But every Sunday, you also get to hear those words of forgiveness, an assurance of pardon that comes to you as if spoken from God's own lips in heaven. Sure, God uses the pastor to make that declaration, but you ought to receive that declaration of forgiveness as if God himself were speaking to you from heaven. Because that's really what's happening. God is announcing and declaring the forgiveness of your sins. We confess our sins in this sure hope that God is good and merciful and will forgive us. See, in one sense, this is what confession is all about. We want the voice of our advocate, Jesus, to drown out the voice of our accuser, Satan, in our hearts, in our lives. There's always a battle between those two voices. The voice of our advocate, Jesus, and the voice of our accuser, Satan. And while Satan can make false accusations against us, sadly, we also give Satan a lot of material to work with to produce these accusations against us. And so he brings these accusations. And how are you going to protect yourself? What kind of shield do you have to deflect those accusations of Satan? You've got the voice of your advocate, Jesus. And we want the voice of Jesus, our advocate, to drown out the voice of Satan, our accuser. And regular confession and absolution is a way of doing that. John Calvin describes the practice of liturgical confession this way, confession that takes place in the context of the worship service. This is what Calvin, uh, our Presbyterian and Reformed father in the faith, says. Since in every sacred assembly we stand before the sight of God and the angels, what other beginning of our action will there be than the recognition of our own unworthiness. He says this ought to be the beginning of every sacred assembly. Every time we come together in the presence of God and the angels, this is the first thing we ought to do, is confess our unworthiness. He says if you consider how great is our complacency, our drowsiness, or our sluggishness, you will agree with me that it would be salutary, a salutary practice, if Christian people were to humble themselves through some public right of confession, a public ritual of confession. And that's what we have. That's what we do every Lord's Day. We practice that confession of our sins to God. But here's the thing. We, we do that every Sunday, but we want the liturgy to be habit-forming. The liturgy should not just be something you do on Sunday. It should be something that shapes your life. The things we do in the liturgy should be habit-forming. The liturgy should form disciplines and practices in our lives. So many of these things just become a matter of custom for us, a, a, a way of life for us. So yes, we confess our sin before the Lord every Sunday, but that should lead to regular times of confessing sin to God throughout the week. Now here, again, it's important for us to understand what confession means. To confess our sin means to acknowledge it. To acknowledge it as sin, to acknowledge what it deserves, that we deserve death and hell because of our sin. It means to agree with God about our sin. Literally, to confess our sin means to say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. So to confess sin, for example, means to stop rationalizing. You can't confess sin when you're making excuses for it. To confess sin means you stop justifying your sin. And so really we could say confession includes or leads to 
Continual conversion, the continual conversion of our lives, continual repentance, it includes or or produces transformation in our lives. Confession shines the light of God's word on the darkness of our sin. So now we know what God wants us to do. We know what we need to repent of. We, We know how we need to change. We know how we need to, by the grace of God, amend our ways and change our lives. When we confess our sin, again, we may be assured that God hears us and forgives us and is at work in us. Again and again and again, when we are called upon to confess our sin, right along with that call to confess our sin is a promise of mercy. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgression, whoever will not confess his sin, will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. 1 John 1, 9. John says, if, if, if we don't confess our sin, we're a liar. We're lying. Uh, but then he says this, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can confess our sins, again, in the sure hope that God will forgive us. Job says, I have not concealed my transgression as others do. And that's why Job expects vindication. Because he's confessed his sin. He's been open and transparent before God about his sin. See, if you want to experience the fullness of God's grace in your life, you must confess your sin continually. It must be a custom. It must be a habit. When we humble ourselves in confession, God exalts us and restores us. We lower ourselves in confession. God raises us up. In Micah 7 The prophet says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? Other gods don't pardon the sins of their people. The true God, the living God, the one and only God is unique. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Those are some of the most beautiful words about God's forgiveness in all of Scripture. God is going to trample your sins under his feet. He is going to crush your sin under his feet. Not only that, he's going to cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. He's going to cast your sins into the ocean. And as I I heard one preacher put it, he says, you know, God casts our sins into the ocean and then he puts up a no fishing sign because that sin has been dealt with. It is over. You don't keep going back to it. You don't keep going back and digging up those old transgressions again and again. You know, some Christians do that. Some Christians torture themselves digging up old transgressions that have already been confessed and forgiven. It's kind of like what a dog does with a bone. You know, a dog will take a bone and he'll bury it in a shallow grave so he can go back to it the next day, dig it up, and start chewing on it again. And that's what a lot of Christians do with their sin. They put those sins in a shallow grave and they go dig them up from time to time just to chew on them a little bit more. And maybe even they think there's somehow something virtuous about feeling bad about themselves, beating themselves up, self-flagellation. There's no need to do that over sins that have already been confessed and forgiven. God has buried our sin. There is no need to keep dredging it up. God has buried your sin. He doesn't want you to go digging it up. God is in the business of covering sin. The cross is the ultimate cover-up operation in all of history. 
Because it covers all of the sins, past, present, and future, of all of God's people. That's what the cross is all about. God covering our sin. That's really what confession is about. Confession is a way of bearing our sin. We get it out in the open so it can be taken away. Now, we often resist confession. Sometimes we don't want to confess our sin because it's humbling. It's a dreadful blow to our pride to have to confess our sin, to admit, yes, I did this or I did not do that. When we do not confess our sin for a long period of time, it's kind of like if you didn't do the dishes for a really long period of time. And if you didn't do the laundry for a really long period of time, and if you didn't clean up the garage for a really long period of time, what would happen? If you don't take care of those things, the laundry, the dishes, the garage, what happens? Your whole house becomes a mess. In fact, it becomes unlivable. It just becomes this huge disaster zone. And and the longer it goes on, and the more you see these messes pile up, pretty soon you start to think, you know, I don't know if we can ever get this place cleaned up. Maybe we should just burn the house down. (laughs) Confessing your sin is to your Christian life what doing the dishes is to your kitchen. Confessing your sin before God is to your Christian walk what taking out the garbage is to your house. Now, there are people who don't do the dishes and don't take out the garbage. There are some people who are hoarders and and they're fine living in filth. There are Christians who hoard their sin. They just never clean it up. They never do anything about it. Scripture tells us again and again, we need to give our sin to God. We need to take out the trash. We need to do the dishes. We need to confess sin regularly before God. Confess it and then be done with it. See, it's really confession. You know, you might think, well, I know I've been forgiven once and for all, right? When I became a Christian and I put my trust in Jesus and I was baptized, I was forgiven once and for all then, right? Well, yeah, in a sense that's true. But in order to keep your relationship with God running smoothly, You have to confess sin regularly. Again, think of yourself, your your life, your body, your heart as a house. Scripture says our, our bodies, our hearts are temples of the Holy Spirit. What kind of house, what kind of temple do you want the Holy Spirit to have to live in? One where the dishes never get done and the laundry never gets cleaned and the garbage never gets taken out? No, do all those things so the Holy Spirit will have a nice and tidy house to live in. Confess your sin before God. Well, here at the risk of overkill, let me give you another example of this. You know how at Christmas time, you know, you pull out a strand of lights, and if you didn't wrap up the strand just right last year, or maybe even if you did, somehow, I, somehow, sometimes I think that those Christmas lights, somebody goes into the attic and tangles them up, you know, between Christmases. Uh, but when you pull out those Christmas lights, a strand of Christmas lights, and the thing's just a tangled mess, and you, you work at it for a few minutes, and then you start to think, you know, maybe I should just pitch this strand and just go buy a new one at Walmart because it's such a mess. It's such a tangled mess. Don't let your sin keep you all tangled up. How do you get the tangles out of your life? You confess your sin regularly. That's how you get free of sin's tangles. And that's what we want to do. We want to live a tangle-free life. It's not that we're not going to sin. We're all going to sin. Every day we're going to sin. We've seen James tells us that. The whole scripture tells us that. But what do you do? 
Every time you sin, you get a little tangle. Again, if you don't do something about it, the tangle gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon it's all just one big tangle. No, confessing sin regularly straightens things out. Straightens things out between you and God. So many of us, so many Christians carry around all this baggage of shame and guilt that they simply don't need to carry. It's like they've got a hundred pound pack of shame and guilt on their back and they just carry it around with them everywhere they go. And there's just no need for it. You do not have to live that way. You do not have to do that. Christians who live this way, if they would just confess their sin, they could drop all that baggage. They could let it go. They don't have to carry it around. I would dare to say unconfessed sin is at the root of all kinds of problems. All kinds of problems in our lives. If God feels distant from you, that's one of the things unconfessed sin does. It makes God feel distant. You can't be in close fellowship with God unless you're regularly confessing sin. Every time you come into God's presence, you need to wipe your feet on his welcome mat. God wants to welcome you into his presence, but as you go into his presence in prayer and worship, wipe your feet on the welcome mat. Confess your sin. Unconfessed sin makes God feel distant. Unconfessed sin can cause all kinds of emotional and psychological and even physical problems. You carry all that guilt around, that shame. Yes, it's going to have an emotional and psychological and even physical effect. It can cause sleeplessness, depression, anxiety. Now, these things are not always due to concealing our sins. Certainly not. Certainly not. But sometimes they are. The reality is, it is hard to be joyful. It is hard to be at peace when you've got this whole backlog of unconfessed sin. Sometimes we are haunted by our pasts. We simply can't get past the past. We are overwhelmed with regret. You know, think about how many country songs are about regret. It's, it's a dominant feature in, in poetry and art, regret. Sometimes Christians live lives that are dominated by regret. We simply can't get past the past. We have regret for sins of omission or sins of commission we have committed. One of the ironies of the Christian life, of course, is that the more we grow and mature and the closer we get to God, the more acutely aware we are of our sin. You know, the closer you get to the light, the more you can see the stains on your shirt. The closer you get to God, the more aware you become of your own sin, the more acutely you feel that, that pain, that sting in your conscience because of your sin the more our failures sting the closer we get to God. Confession is how we experience a release from all of that. Confession is the way we experience the mercy and grace of love and love of God breaking forth in our lives, breaking out in our lives. You want to experience the love of God in a, in a new and fresh way? Confess your sins before Him. And know that once sin is confessed, it is forgiven. There may still be consequences to deal with. It does not eliminate all temporal consequences of our sin. But know that it is forgiven. You do not need to feel guilty for any sin you have ever confessed. Psalm 32.1, David says, Happy is the one whose sins are forgiven. Happy, blessed, joyful is the one whose sins are forgiven. But the only way to experience that joy, that blessedness, is to confess. 
That's how you get that joy. It can only happen if we confess our sin. The only way to get past your past is to confess it. When God forgives you, he doesn't change your past. But he does change the way you look at your past. Confession makes a break with the past. It really is a fresh start, and it frees you from that regret, that shame, that guilt, that burden of regret. It liberates you. Again, don't let old sins rise up out of their graves and condemn you. Leave them where God has buried them. Isn't it odd? You know, psychologists tell us that we have a tendency, it's just part of human nature, to remember and be more impacted by bad things that happen to us or by bad memories than by good memories. It's a whole lot more painful to lose $10,000 than it is to be given $10,000. Just for whatever reason, that's just how we are wired as humans, it seems. We remember bad moments in our lives much more vividly than good moments. It's kind of like those good moments are like sandcastles on the sand that are so easily washed away. Good memories are very fragile. But bad memories seem to stick with us. It's like they're seared into our memory. They're carved in stone. The only way to overcome the past, the only way to overcome those bad memories is through confession. Why? Well, again, it's because confession takes us to the one place where all of that can be dealt with. Confession takes us to the cross. And the cross erases all of that. Again, it's how God throws the sins we've committed into the depths of the ocean. Your past can't be changed, but it can be cleansed. Your past can't be changed, but it can be forgiven. And that's what you need to know. To confess your sin to God means you grieve over it, You call it what it is. It means you repent. And that means you turn from the sin. You commit to change your ways. And of course, all of this has got to be from the heart. When it comes to confession, the heart is the heart of the matter. You confess from the heart. You receive forgiveness in your heart. You rejoice in your heart. And of course, in all this, we've got to remember who God is. God has seen you at your worst. And he loves you anyway. God has seen you at your worst and he still accepts you. He forgives you. That's again what the cross is all about. And this is why we know confession will always be met with grace and mercy. Just as James has talked in the previous verses about healing the body, here we could say he talks about healing the soul. It's through confession. Confession's good for the soul. We've got that saying. It's so proverbial. It can be good for the body too. James has indicated that, but it is always good for the soul. This is how John Calvin puts it. For in Scripture, one way of confession is prescribed. Since it is the Lord who forgives, forgets, and wipes out sins, let us confess our sins to him in order to obtain pardon. He is the physician, therefore let us lay bare our wounds to him. It is he who is hurt and offended, from him let us seek peace. He is the discerner of hearts, the one cognizant of all thoughts, therefore let us hasten to pour out our hearts before him. He it is, finally, who calls sinners. Let us not delay to come to God himself. Now, you might be saying, wait a second, 
James 5.16 says we're to confess our sins to one another, and you've only talked about confessing sin to God. Yes, that is right. And if you want to hear us take the next step, what it is to take the next step and confess sin to one another, you're going to have to come back next week. Because that's when we're going to deal with that. But I wanted to lay this foundation because we really can't talk about confessing sin to one another and what that means. And we really won't know how to receive a confession from someone else unless we understand what it means to confess our sins to God and what it means to hear God declare forgiveness, to wipe away our past, to cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Because what God does, what's happening there in our relationship with God, that is supposed to be mirrored in our relationships with one another. And that is what we're going to see next week. Let's pray together.